Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. A common question facing Catholic and other healthcare professionals, and one that we get fairly regularly through our NCBC consultation service, is what should one do when a patient requests a medical intervention that is contrary to church teaching or contrary to the provider's conscience. Most often we see this with contraception and direct sterilization, but increasingly we see it with ED or erectile dysfunction medications for unmarried men and interventions for so-called gender transitioning. Complicating the issue, accrediting bodies such as ACOG and others are increasingly pressuring clinicians to refer patients for interventions that the clinicians cannot provide for reasons of conscience. One way to address this challenging issue is to understand, and then apply, the distinction between referral and transfer of care. Joining me today to speak about the distinction or distinctions between referral and transfer of care is Dr. Lisa Gilbert, who spoke about this very issue at the February 2022 NCBC Bishops Workshop. Lisa is a board-certified family physician and fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. She practices family medicine at Ascension Via Christi in Wichita, Kansas. In addition to practicing medicine, Lisa is a strident proponent of conscience rights and has developed an academic course titled Advocacy for Life, which I hope we get a chance to discuss as well in this interview. Dr. Lisa Gilbert, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I have to tell our audience, and I told you this before we went, uh, before we started recording, I have been after you for months, if not year plus to get you on this podcast. And I finally got you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been a long time coming. It sure has. All right. So our listeners know that um, as a new guest on our podcast, I always ask our guests to tell them something about themselves. But I'm going to I'm going to kind of uh, usurp the conversation a little bit in the beginning here because I'm really interested in hearing about your childhood in Africa as well as your conversion to Catholicism. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So uh, I grew up as a missionary kid in uh, East Africa. So my parents were evangelical missionaries uh, with a Pentecostal group. And so I grew up in Kenya. And then uh, for my high school years, we moved to West Africa. My parents taught at Bible schools or the equivalent of seminaries. And then they moved to South Africa for 10 years. And that's uh, after which they retired from missions. And I joined them there for one year. So I spent uh, a good portion of my growing up and formation years um, in Africa. And I think my first introduction to Catholics that I can recall was when I took a gap year from college and I joined my parents in South Africa uh, in Cape Town. There was a HIV uh, orphanage for children that were HIV positive just before antiretrovirals came through. So uh, I was able to volunteer and work with these children and, um, you know, kind of um, assist them in sort of just feeding and, and, and playtime and that sort of thing. Nothing, um, nothing tremendous, but that was really my, my first exposure, I think, to uh, the Catholic Church and uh, certainly been uh, a Christian my whole life, but never really had that exposure. And so from there, um, that actually changed my trajectory from planning to go into research um, 
when I came back to uh, go back to college, I actually changed gears and went from um, kind of a research track uh, in biomedical research towards uh, pre-med and decided I, I wanted to go into medicine. I wanted to be able to help kids like the kids that I had seen uh, on a more, um, maybe more practical level. And so um, off I went to uh, finish college and then uh, on to medical school um, and then on to residency. And uh, the residency that I picked was uh, a Catholic-based uh, hospital system, Via Christi at the time, before it uh, merged into Ascension. And one of the reasons that I picked this particular residency program uh, to go into family medicine, there was a number of reasons, but one of them was uh, just knowing that I had that protection for conscience. And that was really, really important to me. I was kind of uncertain as to what was going to happen. Um, I think uh, that was the era of uh, President Obama, and I was a little unclear as to what would be required for healthcare professionals um, during that time. And I uh, just needed to kind of sort some things out. And so that was maybe my, my second exposure um, to, to anything to do with, with um, the Catholic Church. And I became familiar with the uh, ethical and religious directives, um, as well as um, just kind of seeing the faith and practice uh, throughout the healthcare system. And it was during my residency, actually, that I um, really began exploring, I think, um, a lot uh, of church history, a lot of the patristic writings. And really found myself drawn increasingly to um, to the Catholic Church. I was also at the time drawn east. Um, there is a wonderful uh, Orthodox community where I went to residency, which is where I'm where I'm at now, and that really um, pulled me as well. I really appreciated the liturgy and and again that that patristic and that that um, patristic writings and the and the and the depth of the hymnography and the iconography. And uh, so I, I found myself in a bit of a of a dilemma where I felt I felt myself very strongly and essentially equally pulled both directions, and knowing that I wanted to be in communion with Rome, and yet at the same time sensing myself and my my practice of the faith really being drawn east, and um, and so I kind of left it at that. I, I ended up uh, temporarily uh, attending a Missouri Synod Lutheran uh, communion. And that was wonderful, just absolutely wonderful uh, uh, church body. Uh, but also, I knew I wasn't 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 home. It didn't it didn't feel like that was where I needed to be. Um, so I finished residency kind of in a in a state of uh, I suppose spiritual uh, limbo, certainly growing <laughs> in my faith and and yep. and uh, you know growing in in my relationship with the Lord, but but not really settled in terms of where I needed to be. Uh, and so then I did a fellowship in international family medicine. Uh, which uh, I was planning at the time, I'd always been planning my whole life to go into medical missions overseas. That was my heart and my trajectory. And so I did this year training program, uh, which half of the year was in the U.S., focused on some additional training that that a lot of people don't get during residency. And then the other half of the year is in, uh, in my case, in Africa. So I went to Niger, which is a country just north of Nigeria, one of the countries, it's a wonderful country, but it's uh, it's very difficult. Um, it has some of the worst health indicators anywhere in the world. It's always on the on the bottom ten list for maternal mortality, infant mortality. Yet you name it, it's 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 there. It's uh, near most of it's desert, and then the rest of it is uh, what we call Sahel, which is this sort of um, bush, gravelly, uh, semi-arid uh, region. And um, a lot of malnutrition, a lot of a lot of challenges uh, within that country, and so I I spent uh, about five months there and 
really struggled during that time, um, really had to wrestle with the um, sort of the existential questions of why is there evil in in, in this world and, and where is God? And um, again, seeing a lot of death, um, a lot of uh, morbidity, um, a lot of uh, challenges to people that uh, really, you know, had you know, done nothing to bring it upon themselves. And, and, and you just really, your heart just goes out uh, for those people. And at the end of that, I felt uh, just very, very lost, I think, um, in, in that time. I, I never at, by any means rejected my faith in, in, in God, but it just really sort of shook me as to where, um, where I was going and whether I was able to do medical missions, where God was calling me, what church communion I was supposed to be in, all of these sort of questions. And so um, thankfully, my my parents are wise people and encouraged me to just take some time. And so I uh, did what I'd always wanted to do, which is actually go study at a little school in Canada, in Ottawa called uh, Augustine College. And it's a extremely small school, uh, usually 10 to 20 students per class. It's a one-year program, and you live in community. Um, and um, they have a variety of different classes. Um, and it was it was during that time that I was really able to sort of separate myself from medicine and just really plug into where I was going and where I needed to be. And there were several faculty that were there that were Ukrainian Greek Catholic, which is a church that is, uh, it's one of the 23 Eastern churches that is in communion, full communion with Rome, and uh, but practices Orthodox uh, as as um, uh, uh, Orthodox tradition. And so uh, it was really here that I started at, uh, attending services and just um, truly fell in love with it and, and sensed uh, a great deal of peace that this is where the Lord was calling me and this is where he'd been calling me to. And I just didn't happen to know it existed because I had no idea that there were Eastern churches that were in communion with Rome. Yeah. So kind of a long story short, but um, that that is where I was um received in uh, to the church. Uh, I was chrismated, which is the equivalent of confirmation since I'd, I'd already been baptized mm-hmm. actually in the, in the Indian Ocean. And um, so this was kind of the fulfillment of all of that. And um, and then from there, I was able to sort of uh, settle myself back into practice and, and really sense that God was still calling me into medicine, and um, but perhaps not overseas, at least not right now. Yeah. So, so you're a member of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. I'm wondering, as we were recording this podcast on March 10th, and we're, you know, smack in the middle of the, I don't know what you want to call it, the the roar of the war of Russian aggression, maybe the best way of of terming it. How has um, how have the recent events in Ukraine impacted you? It's been it's been certainly a challenge. I I have a lot of um, a good number of friends that are uh, Ukrainian by ethnicity um, and that obviously are connected to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And uh, so hearing their stories and, uh, you know, sensing their their struggle with, you know, seeing their country just being torn apart um, has been really hard. And um, I've never been to Ukraine. I, I had been wanting to go and yeah. it hasn't happened yeah, me yet. Too. And, it's just been it's been really really devastating to see um, the uh, leader of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Um, uh, we refer to him as as Patriarch uh, Sviatoslav, but I think officially in the in the Latin Church he's referred to as a Major Archbishop uh, Sviatoslav. He's been releasing daily video updates, and there's a there's a website that's um, been dedicated uh, to the specific crisis that's been um, ongoing there. So if people do want to check that out, they're certainly welcome to. It's called the Ukrainian 
the Ukrainian Catholic Crisis Media Center. So if you want to go there, it's uccmc.org. And uh, it just has a lot of information and resources. Um, and I think in some ways it's helped guide me in how I pray about the crisis and um, and being able to to be connected and, and spiritually and um, and also uh, tangibly. I know um, Caritas Ukraine has been uh, actively meeting the needs there. So I'm sure there's a million organizations, but that, that seems to be one that is at least uh, reaching the people with um, tangible items and things that they need right now. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can hear you. Maybe not to the extent that you're connected to to the Ukraine, but my uh, my family comes from Poland mostly, and my maternal grandfather is from the Ukraine. And I've been to Poland a couple of times. I'd love to go to the Ukraine. Um, the only thing I can say in in I guess the Ukrainian language is "Christos Voskras." Christos Voskras. Yeah. But that but that in English that is. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. That's all yeah. I can say. Whenever I meet someone from the Ukraine and I say that, I always get a big smile like I just got from you. So, But someday, you know, when all of this craziness calms down, um, do a trip to, uh, got to go to the Ukraine. So Lisa, you've given us kind of a, a, a kind of a large picture. I was wondering if we could kind of fill in a few of the blanks a little bit in terms of maybe dates and years, that type of thing. Tell us a bit about your education, you know, where you went to school, where you went to medical school, and some of your work experience. Again, you talked about your experiences, but some of your work experiences, including your uh, present position at Ascension Via Christi. Yeah, so um, I uh, did college in, in Springfield, Missouri, uh, at Missouri State University um, with a, a double major in French and in uh, cell and molecular biology. So well, that's an interesting a, combination. You've right? got to use all sides of your brain, and um, and it actually helped me studying the one to help the other because I could take a break from, from one side and, and uh, resort to the other. Um, I wanted to keep French alive, thinking that I might end up using it in West Africa. Um, since I'd, I'd been there uh, for high school, I learned some of it there and wanted to keep growing in that. Um, medical school, I went to, uh, I was in Dallas, and it was uh, Southwest Medical Center, one of the UT systems. And uh, so I was there from 2005 to 2009. And then I went to residency at uh, 2009 to 2012, where I am now. So I've, I've sort of done full circle. Um, and then I took the extra year to do the fellowship. Uh, then I was, like I said, took a, took a bit of a, a gap year. <laughs> Again, if you can do that uh, sort of after your training. Uh, that's sure, what I ended up why doing. not? What, what the uh, heck? Why not? Decided to move to, to Ottawa, Canada for the uh, liberal arts uh, school that I went to there. And then I was recruited to Western Kansas, to a place that I had done some moonlighting at before, to a little hospital uh, where I worked at for about two and a half years, full spectrum family medicine, delivering babies, seeing patients in the ER, in the clinic. Um, and uh, and so I was out there for a while, um, mostly intending to fill in, and I just kept on staying. And um, and then I decided to come back and join faculty where I'm at right now, so that I, I came back to the place I'd finished residency in, and uh, I've been here for about five years uh, on faculty. Yeah. All right. So my next question, this is, this is sort of the overachiever question. You really make me look bad when I, when I ask you this question. So in addition to doing all that you're doing now, um, you are a board member of APLOG, which is the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. You serve on the Catholic Medical Association's ethics and its uh, healthcare policy committees. You're an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And you're a physician fellow of the NCBC. And I, there's probably other things that I'm missing in there, but tell briefly, kind of what 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 are you doing in the, in with this work as well? 
Yeah, and I, and I will say the other thing I'm doing is I'm getting my master's in uh, Catholic clinical ethics, and I should graduate. I, for, I knew that. <laughs> I forgot about that. We were talking about that yeah. in front of the Supreme Court back on yeah, the, uh, the so Dobbs Day. It yes. has been a wild ride. I think um, they always say, you know, if you need something done, you find a busy person to do it. <laughs> And it seems like, you know, it's the, the snowball effect of you end up on one committee and then, well, well why don't you just join this other? Um, so it's it's certainly been uh, it's been busy uh, trying to keep up with with all of these. But it's been a real joy to to be able to, um, I think, use some of the skills that I have or at least to develop the ones that I don't have and to, be right. able to use those um, hopefully for 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 good work and for the kingdom. Yeah. So what does a typical day look like with, with all of these things that you're involved in? If, if there is, a, everybody always says there's no such thing as a typical day. Right. But. And I, I would say that's probably especially true with family medicine because uh, we, uh, we, we certainly do a lot of various things. So in, in my, in my actual job, the, the paid job that I have as a core faculty member here at Ascension Via Christi, um, what we do is we will cover about a week, a month of inpatient service. So that could be medicine uh, patients where the residents go and see the patients in the hospital, and then we, you know, come and do rounds with them and um, and oversee everything. Um, or it could be a week of, of obstetrical care. Uh, during that week, and we take call during that time, and then we'll go usually for uh, some night night calls uh, where we're admitting patients. We may be delivering babies at night, sort of whatever comes into our healthcare system that is part of our service. And then the rest of the time, we'll be in clinic. And I I have a very limited um, personal uh, private practice of only a half day a week um, because the majority of my job is what we call precepting, which is residents, again, that I'm that I'm overseeing, they go and see patients, they come and check out with me, we talk about it. Um, if there's things that maybe uh, I want to add to their care or things that I want to suggest, we'll talk about those things. And then uh, occasionally, I'll go see the patients as well and just make sure that everything is um, tidied up. If there's a confusing rash or something like that, then they'll usually pull me into the room. So it's really interesting just because we have, you know, what we call womb to tomb, we have the whole variety of, of uh, ages and um and then we have, you know, hospital-based care, and then we have obstetrical care. So it's it's a real joy, um, but it it changes all the time. Uh, my schedule is never the same. So, and then sort of on top of that, I've been uh, trying to fit in evening classes when I can for my masters, as well as um, a lot of these committees have various uh, activities that you know w- wax and wane throughout the year, depending on 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 what's going on in the uh, public policy arena or with other things. Yep. Yeah. So adding on to the list of things that you did, uh, so you were a speaker at the uh, February 2022 NCBC Bishops Workshop. And at the at the workshop, you talked about referral versus transfer of care, which we're going to get into um, in a minute. But I'm just, I'm wondering if you could tell us about your, tell us your thoughts about the experience of, of meeting and presenting uh, in front of the bishops. Yeah, I, um, I, I had to kind of laugh because um, I, eight years ago when I was you know, received into the church and chrismated, I never would have imagined <laughs> even speaking to one bishop, much less, you know, I don't know how many were there, 65. Um, so it, it, it was a, it was an honor. Um, it was a little surreal uh, to uh, be wondering sort of, I wonder why I'm here, but you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm asked, I'm happy to come. But, uh, but it, it was a real joy, I think, just to be there and just to see the, um, the passion and the heart that the bishops have for healthcare and, and just, you know, feel like maybe we can come alongside them and support them in their work as well. Yeah. All right. So the topic of your presentation at the Bishop's Workshop was, as the title of this 
podcast is referral versus transfer of care. So Lisa, what do these two terms mean and what are some of the challenges? And these could be moral challenges, these could be practical challenges, whatever. What challenges do they present for Catholic healthcare professionals and really others of goodwill? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, I'll kind of start off with a little bit of the, the definition side. So referrals and transfer of care, a lot of times uh, we will think about this um, in an outpatient setting. And that's that's kind of the focus of this, although there are issues that come up in an inpatient setting as well. But in a clinical setting, in an outpatient setting, a referral is when a, uh, a healthcare professional, usually a physician or a PA or a nurse practitioner, will put in an order for a patient to be able to see another clinician of some kind. Um, and so that could be, I might put in an order to see a cardiologist or mm-hmm. for a patient to see orthopedic surgeon or even physical therapy. And it is a, uh, it's a very specific um, type of directive that it has to say what I'm referring for and uh, to whom I'm referring. It's not just sort of a general thing, but uh, what it, what it uh, practically does is it triggers the um, you know, our, our office staff and our referral staff to um, reach out to that other healthcare uh, clinician to see if they will accept that patient and to get all of the paperwork over. Um, but it's very much directed by the healthcare professional. No one can sort of force me to do a referral. Um, it has to be something that I think that is in the patient's best interest, uh, that, that that's what the patient needs. Um, and it has to be to someone that I believe is is at least a healthcare professional in good standing. So um, if I know that the person is is a fraud of some kind or, or, or doesn't perform good care, I you know, I can't in good good conscience refer to that person. Um, so those are those are the things that come into that. And sort of the opposite of that is what's called a transfer of care. And a transfer of care is uh, driven by the patient. So um, there can be times where um, a professional you know, interaction might um, might not be ideal. And maybe the patient feels like, I think I could get better care with another healthcare professional. Um, that patient has uh, the right to to be able to, to do that. Uh, occasionally, there's some insurance challenges with, with transferring care. But um, but in general, that, that patient has the ability and the, and the right to be able to say, to seek other care that might be more in keeping with what they are looking for. Uh, on the other side, sometimes the healthcare professional might say, "This is just not—we're just not a good a good professional fit." Um, that the patient is um, is is maybe not acting in a way that that may be appropriate for the practice. Um, might be maybe acting a bit hostile to staff or things like that. And of course, you try to mitigate those things. But over time, if it sort of gets to a point where um, where the actual therapeutic relationship is not going well, then it it might be time for um, a termination of care by the by the uh, physician themselves to say, you know, I just I'm so sorry, but this is not going to be the best fit for us as a as a therapeutic relationship. But then the patient um, still needs to go ahead and look to to find some other uh, healthcare professional to meet their needs. They can provide a general list to say, like, here's here's some other family physicians that are in the area, or here's some other people. But this is not something that I'm going to be um, able to do um, any longer. And then and then the patient will call another office. And then usually the original healthcare professional will, will send records, you know, to, to whoever they, they want to designate. So those are just some, some sort of uh, large scale differences between the two that one is very much driven by the healthcare professional to say, I'm uh, directing this patient to seek this particular uh, intervention with this particular healthcare professional. 
And that's, I, I think just the thing that that strikes me the most about the referral is if you are a referring physician, you are referring for something particular. It's, it's not a general type of, I think you should see this person, but you're referring this patient to this cardiologist or whatever for this specific reason. Yeah, there's a usually a uh, diagnosis of, right. of what you're what you're sending them for. Occasionally, it can be a little bit vague. Of I, I'm just not quite sure what is going on mm-hmm. with this patient. I've ruled out X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm going to send them to the gastroenterologist because I, you know, everything that I've looked at, I can't find an answer to. So there can be sometimes where you're not necessarily speaking, you know, seeking a specific intervention, but asking, you know, a, a, a clinical question. I just don't know anymore. Can you go ahead and and, right. and diagnose this patient? But in general, I would say um, that a lot of the referrals are for a specific intervention or or to treat a specific issue. All right. So, what is, what ethical issue or issues come up particularly with referrals? Um, well, I think in terms of a of a, a Catholic healthcare professional, there are a number of issues. And really, anyone that um, is a healthcare professional of of goodwill that is seeking to do what is best for the patient, and and the biggest ones that I think that people probably think of would be, you know, abortion, assisted suicide, um, issues like that, where I think you know anyone that would be looking at that would say, you know, th- this is something that would be. Um, a major violation of conscience to to require someone to refer for for these specific things because it does either end the life of the patient or either in the womb or or if it's an elder uh, seeking assisted suicide. But there's a number of other issues and contraception being one of them um, mm-hmm. that I see frequently re- referrals being made for you know procedural um, contraception whether that's an IUD or an explanon um, or other other forms of contraception but um, sort of as you alluded to at the very beginning of this there's there are other things as well that come into this um, transgender interventions uh, are another one that um, I see uh, referrals being made for from time to time erectile dysfunction for unmarried persons um, mm-hmm. occasionally um, pre-exposure prophylaxis for mm-hmm. HIV yep. something called prep. Yep. Is another one that's coming up yep. increasingly, and um, and I think it it really puts um, some healthcare professionals into a question of what do I do in these particular situations? Um, a patient's asking me for something that I think may not be in their best interest. It may not be in the good of of the whole of that person, um, not just their physical body, but their 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 entirety as a human being, um, and and also maybe against the conscience of the healthcare professional as a moral agent that. Um, not wanting to to facilitate or to cooperate with something that might not uh, that might lead a patient into a direction that is uh, is not holistically good for them. Yeah. So we at the NCBC we would say that if if, if a re, if a physician is referring a patient for something that is as you said um, like abortion or or something like that, that's actually formal cooperation with that you know with that moral evil. And you know that raises a whole number of questions. You're nodding your heads. I, 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 um, I think you're obviously in agreement with that. But I guess the question that I that I have, and I alluded to it uh, in the introduction with uh, organizations like ACOG, and they, they seem to be the big ones, that they're saying, well, okay, um, you know, physician X, Lisa, for yourself, you know, you may not perform uh, an abortion or whatever, but as as a medical professional if you yourself can't perform this procedure then you have a duty to 
directly refer a patient, whether it's to Planned Parenthood or to, or to some other um, healthcare professional, to have this "quote unquote" procedure done. And you know, as as we said, I mean, we see that as as formal cooperation with a moral evil. And so we've got you know, kind of two things, you know. Uh, two things butting up against each other. It's, you know, we can't participate in an act that is intrinsically evil. We can't formally cooperate with an act that's intrinsically evil. Yet you have medical organizations, accrediting organizations who are saying, well, yes, you have to do that. So, you know, provide uh, medical professionals are, are kind of between a rock and a hard place on this. Yeah. And I, and I see that increasingly becoming an issue. Um, there are board certifying organizations, which are separate from the uh, professional medical society mm-hmm. organizations, but they work very closely together. So in particular, ACOG, uh, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I should have um, said that before. Thank you for clarifying that. That is not my personal organization because I'm not an OBGYN. I'm a family physician. But what happened there is that they worked very closely with ABOG, which is the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And if uh, people wanted to be board certified, then if they didn't agree with all of the ethical policies of ACOG, which is the professional society, then they weren't allowed to be board certified. That was what they were trying to do. And one of the statements from ACOG is that you have to refer for abortion if you won't do it, as well as any other service that you um, that you are unwilling to do. And the problem there is that if you're not board certified, it's very difficult to have hospital privileges, which is the biggest thing. It's very difficult sometimes to even... Um, to be able to practice in a particular healthcare setting. You can certainly still get licensed in most states without that, but just because you're licensed doesn't mean that anyone's going to employ you. Um, and so a lot of employers are, are only seeking, which it makes complete sense, you're only seeking people that are board certified. And so I think that the concern is that that, that could be modeled in other places. Thankfully, that was um, that was um, brought to the court and 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 that has has not gone through with the the issue between ACOG and ABOG that people still have the right to be able to uh, not refer uh, for abortion and still be board certified but that was going to be a major major issue if that didn't get turned around and so i certainly have the same concern with my with my own organization the american academy of family physicians if there was ever a clause for board certification with the ABFM if if that would ever become an issue because that would mean that you know I wouldn't be able to practice medicine as a board certified physician, and that right. would be a major problem. Yeah, I could see your board, um, maybe not so much on abortion, but on the 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 interventions for so called gender transitioning. I could see that coming down the pike. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that's the, that's the next big um, the next big question is what's going to happen with that. And and I would also say that a lot of the physicians that are performing assisted suicide are actually family mm. doctors. Yeah, there's another um, one. Yep. And so I think that there's a, a bit of a hesit- hesitancy for the palliative care and hospice organizations to want to be known as the organizations that perform assisted suicide. Um, no matter what title you you term it, whether it's legally accelerated death or medical aid and dying, whatever term you want to use, um, I think they all recognize patients are going to really hesitate to come to us if if we're known as the organization that does this. And so because of that, for whatever reason, it, it seems to be falling to family medicine. So we we kind of get the uh, uh, you know the the full um, the full circle there. There's an increasing push in our own uh, organization towards abortion as well. Um, yeah. To be able to uh, perform, particularly the the chemical abortion um, pills, 
um, is increasingly being uh, taught and advertised uh, within uh, family medicine. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, how medical professionals can best navigate this minefield. But but before going there, I'd like to go back because you said something a number of minutes ago about most of the time these referral and transfer of care questions come up in an outpatient setting. But I'm wondering, do they come up in, um, well, you know, in the operations of, say, a medical group or within a healthcare system? Do, do, do those... Are, are those challenges that people have to face on those levels as well, or is it is it more or less confined to a, a patient and, and particularly an outpatient situation or outpatient encounter, I should say? Well, um, I think there's a, a number of ways you can look at that. So, in a uh, a physician is never technically required to to perform a referral uh, for something that they either don't agree, you know, generally don't agree is in the patient's best interest, medically and otherwise. Um, and, and so there, there cannot be um, a requirement uh, to make that referral, except for in situations where they may feel some duress to do so. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at, that physicians uh, and other healthcare professionals do practice in groups now. Um, it's not the patient-physician relationship of, of, of the days gone by, at least in our heads, <laughs> where, um, where there's nobody else involved and there's insurance companies involved. Um, and um, there's a lot of restrictions, uh, particularly with HMOs, over um, you know, who is your primary care uh, professional is usually assigned to you. And then the only way to see another healthcare professional is to have a formal referral. So a patient can't, quote unquote, self-refer um, if, they, uh, if a patient wanted you know, a particular intervention, then they uh, do have to go through their primary care physician. And switching primary care physicians can be uh, very difficult, particularly if you're sort of locked in in an insurance way in a payment, uh, you know, settlement uh, with with your entire group with a particular insurance company or with an organization. There's an increasing push to um, that companies will directly contract to have a physician or a physician group be the um, the healthcare providers for all of their employees, for example. And so that, that makes it very difficult as well um, in, in terms of, of rights of conscience. So I think that the bigger the organization, um, it, sometimes the, the more difficult it is to sort of navigate some of these questions. And the other thing is, I think if you are in a hierarchical system, so, if, and, and, you know, you have to report to someone, especially if you're in a training situation like residents oh, that yeah. don't have yep. full autonomy, um, PAs that are often working underneath um, the uh, oversight of a uh, physician, uh, nurse practitioners. It kind of varies state by state. Some some states are they're completely independent, but other states they are they're still in some sort of professional uh, contractual relationship with a with a physician, and so that's that's another area where it may be a little bit um, a little bit less clear as to. Uh, as to how much how, how much right the of, of conscience where did those start where did those end what does that look like yeah as you were talking i was thinking about our podcast with uh my friend megan kreft um and i believe it was episode 42 for everybody if anybody hasn't heard if you like to go back and listen to it but that was the situation she faced she was in a very large healthcare system um she's a physician assistant and um she was she was fired for um you know for refusing to do you know some of the things that you've been talking about here. So yeah, this is, this is real life stuff. Anyway. So, so Lisa, how can a, how can a medical professional best navigate this minefield? So um, just to kind of maybe stop and kind of set the, uh, 
you know, kind of set the table for a second here. So referrals, particularly referrals for something that is intrinsically immoral, um, abortion, contraception, gender, quote unquote, affirming interventions, right? We would say that that's formal cooperation with evil. Can't do that. Uh, uh, Transfer of care, however, if a patient chooses to go somewhere else, we can, you know, say, okay, you know, here's the records and everything else. That's, you know, that that's not a problem, so to speak. But how does a medical professional best navigate this minefield when they, you know, when they're they're faced with a patient who's demanding a referral for something that the that the uh, healthcare professional cannot refer for? Yeah, I think. you know, as with every, as with everything that's challenging, go to prayer first, um, <laughs> and um, and discernment. Um, I think there are some very very clear situations where you cannot do a referral. You should not do a referral. I think there's some areas where people of goodwill might have slightly different understandings about whether or not um, to to refer. Um, the Catholic Medical Association has some statements um, for some of the some of the areas that are um, maybe newer or maybe a little more um, nuanced, um, such as, uh, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV and, you know, questions about erectile dysfunction medications and, and how does that play in. Um, but the, the biggest thing is is to really uh, form your conscience well, I think, to, to reach out, to look at the resources that are out there at the NCBC, the CMA, and other resources as well, and take it to prayer, take it to your spiritual director, um, so that when you are approached with these issues, which will inevitably be when you're busy, you're behind, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I mean, end of just, the day when you're the end of the day and, you're and you've got a million and things to do. Yep. And, um, that's it, and that's when those issues come up. And that's not the time that you need to be sorting through what do I even think about this issue? You know, certainly we're always going to be blindsided by things we never expected in the office, but, but, but there are some, some, um, you know, some things that, that, you know, at some point or other is going to come through your office and you need to be ready for it. Um, Referrals for a vasectomy, for example, or um, for you know other sterilization for for women, and and having a game plan, I think, ahead of time is going to be important. Um, listening to the patient, as always, respecting the patient, making sure that they know that they um, they have that intrinsic value and worth and human dignity. And no matter what they do, whether they choose to stay with you and then they self refer to go see another physician for this thing that they're that they're seeking, that they know they can come back to you. They know that you will listen to them. They know that you care about them. Uh, you know, if you're open with it, that you're praying for them, um, and that you have their best interest in mind. And I and I think that that um, that goes, you know, a million miles um, because that that really is uh, what, as Catholic healthcare professionals, we're called to do is is to really be that witness and that welcoming witness um, yeah. for for everyone around us. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you an unfair question because you're not a lawyer. Even though you do everything else, so maybe you are a lawyer. Who knows? You could be in law school for all you know, all, all I know here too. But um, Lisa, do you know what legal recourse, if any, that medical professionals have in this case? You you, you started to talk about this a bit, but do, do medical professionals have any kind of legal standing in terms of not referring or uh, or protection in these types of cases? So I know that there is uh, legal protections specific to. Uh, abortion and mm-hmm. specific to to trainees, um, medical students, residents uh, mm-hmm. with regard to abortion. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that there is a lot of legal protection outside of that area. And it's right. something that, that is desperately needed. There are you know ways that you can report harassment 
and um, like through the HHS. Unfortunately, well, not, not right now. Not right now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and in any case, even when it was there, I'm not sure that much was done with that uh, information other than having it on a record, but it, it didn't provide legal protection. And so um, there are a number of legal organizations that are out there. Alliance Defending Freedom has done a tremendous amount yeah. of work. There I was going to mention them if mm-hmm. you didn't. Yeah. ADF are, has a yeah. lot of really good stuff. Um, they have free consultations uh, for healthcare professionals. Um, and I think it's just really important to know your resources, that that's one of them. There, there are others that are out there, um, but, uh, but they, they have um, a, lot of, a lot of protections that are there. The other thing that's coming through, um, I know it won't pass anytime soon, but there are some conscience laws, both at the federal and at the state level, that are, that are now being promoted. And there's some, if you're interested, you can learn about it. The, I think it's called the Med Act bill um, that you can look at in a couple of states and see if that would be something that your state could pass. Um, you can certainly meet with your legislator and see if they'd be interested in looking at that. Um, because there really does need to be state protection uh, for a lot of these issues that um, healthcare professionals um, should have the the right to be able to practice um, certainly good healthcare, um, but also to be able to, to bring um, these conscience issues to the forefront because they are in the best interest of our patients as well. Yeah. I'd like to follow up on something you, you talked about earlier about professional judgment. And I've, I've had um, conversations with healthcare professionals about some of the issues that you talked about. And I'm thinking particularly the prep um, for, you know, for HIV or to, to prevent HIV or ED medications for men who are unmarried. And I've had healthcare professionals tell me that what they will do the way they approach these these conversations because they they can't prescribe the medications that the person wants, uh, or at least in the ED case um, they can't prescribe the the medication. But what they do is instead of you know getting into a discussion about ethics or or whatnot else, they they talk about you know is is the behavior that you're engaged in so that you want this medication is that really in your overall health. And they've actually, um, conversations I've had, physicians have had a lot of really good luck with patients in terms of talking about that. And I'm wondering if you, if you could comment on that, if, if, um, if, if, that's, if that's a way that um, you, know, you think would be helpful or, or how that would work in a clinical setting. Yeah, um, a couple things with that. I think, first of all, um, it's, it is paramount for us that practice according to our consciences to always... Um, to always bring to light that this is this is not a way of discriminating against patients. It's mm-hmm. a way of, of discriminating against interventions, mm-hmm. and so that has to always be brought to the to the forefront. You're not discriminating yeah. against the patient. You welcome them. You want to see them. You want to see them back. You don't want to lose yep. them as a patient. Um, and yeah, Ashley um, Fernandez talks about this quite mm-hmm, a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the specific the specific intervention that is problematic, and that the intervention is not going to achieve the end to which it's supposed to achieve, which is the holistic well-being of that patient. Right. And so that's the reason to not engage with that particular intervention. And so um, so I think that's one way that healthcare professionals can help to think about it, because um, I think they themselves, we ourselves are, are concerned about, I don't want to discriminate and I don't want them to feel like I'm discriminating right. against them, even, if, even when I'm not. Um, I do think that patients are hungry in general, um, to have somebody talk to them about who they are as a person and whether certain things are in their best interest and, and to leave it open-ended. Um, is this, is this something that's leading you to your best life? 
what does that best life look for mm-hmm. you? How can we look at that? And and how can we make steps towards that end? Um, and I think patients in general, I think all of us in general are wanting to have these deeper conversations. Um, and as much as we might think that we want the, the quick fix, um, I think a lot of us are thinking, you know, what's what's the deeper issues here? What are the underlying moral determinants of health, as we as we call it? Um, we right. talk a lot about social determinants of health, yep. but what are the underlying things that are keeping us from achieving the best that um, that that we desire for ourselves? Even people that aren't people of faith recognize there's a better life out there that I could be living, and how can we help people? You know move in that direction and then questioning, is this the thing that's going to help you move in that direction? And a lot of times I think patients will say, maybe, maybe not, maybe that's really not what I'm, what I'm really seeking. And maybe this other thing is what I'm really seeking. Well, let's, let's meet back next week. Let's talk about this some more. Um, let's see, you know, what other options are out there to help you achieve this goal that you're, that you're hoping to achieve. Yeah. And you as a physician or the clinician in whatever role you're in, you may be the only person who's ever asking this person these questions. Yeah. I think yeah, I think a lot of us think that people are having those deep yeah. meaningful interactions with their life, but one thing that I um have found in practice and I think that this is is sort of true probably across the country from the data that I've read is that the number of close people in our lives has decreased um mm-hmm. over the last, you know, 50 years or you know, it used to be most people had 3 people that they could rely on no matter what, inside and out, upside and down. Uh, to you know, be there in the middle of the night if they needed them or or whatever it was, and now most people have less than one on average, um, and I I frequently see people like that, which means that they're not having somebody else speaking into their life. This is what I'm seeing. Is this really what you want? Is this really in your best interest? You know, most people are not plugged into a therapist, and right. most people, but even beyond that, they don't even necessarily just have friends and family that are able to sort of. Um, help guide them in a way that would lead them into that, into that uh, fruitful um, flourishing. Yeah. Hmm. Good stuff. All right. So Lisa, a goal of the 2022 NCBC Bishops Workshop was to offer the U.S. Bishops model language uh, to revise the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, also known as the, the ERDs. So what language did you offer and why is it important that the bishops address the issue of referral versus transfer of care in a, well, we can only hopefully, um, hopefully it'll be a soon revision of the ERDs. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that the conference was focused on was uh, updating the ethical and religious directives with some of the newer issues that are at hand, or at least maybe hadn't been as prominent in the past, even if they were um, specific issues. And so um, providing model language that certainly the bishops are going to, you know, tinker with, and they're going to, you know, make it make it fit whatever they need, but at least providing some some um, initial language that they can use, I think, um, is, is going to be really helpful to sort of get the ball rolling towards this process. And um, so there were two uh, uh, directives uh, for the ethical and religious directives um, that I suggested, and um, and uh, but but essentially um, focusing on that healthcare professionals um, should not refer patients who request immoral procedures to another professional who is known to provide them, and if despite medical and pastoral accompaniment that the patient insists on these interventions, then a transfer of care can be initiated by the patient, and the healthcare professional 
uh, can provide a general list of other healthcare professionals or facilities in the area, um, but shouldn't direct somebody specifically to another healthcare professional who provides these immoral interventions. And then, of course, the, the healthcare professional should transfer records, um, and you know, and um, in in order to assure a safe transfer of care. Um, so that was that was the the main gist of it. Um, I did talk a little bit about um, hospital transfer orders uh, as well, because I think that that's something that comes up, you know, obviously in the inpatient setting or potentially in nursing homes um, and other situations where maybe a patient would want to discontinue um, a feeding tube um, mm-hmm. in order to um, end their life. Or uh, there may be other situations where a patient is seeking um, uh, lethal medications to end their life. Um, and uh, so I think that there are some issues that come up specific to how do you ethically transfer a patient um, who is, uh, you know, seeking something that is that is clearly immoral. Um, and I provided some some uh, um, some model language on that as well. But but the primary thrust of it is to really say uh, we as, as healthcare professionals uh, within Catholic institutions should not be referring for the things that our institution um, doesn't uh, doesn't offer or provide. Um, for these intrinsically immoral uh, issues that are not in the patient's best interest and, and certainly contrary to Catholic healthcare. Right. Yeah. Let's hope that the bishops uh, take your suggestions and we see them in the uh, in the next revised edition of the ERDs. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. So I want to change topics a little bit and, and talk briefly about your work uh, in terms of advocating for conscience rights. We mentioned this in the in the introduction and and again, this is another reason why I want, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for, for so long. So Lisa, can you, can you tell us a bit about your, effort, your efforts to advocate for conscience rights and, and what organizations are you working with in these efforts? Yeah. Um, so conscience um, protections, you know, we talked about it just briefly, like that it's uh, clearly a need, um, uh, both legally and uh, in our professional organizations to have um, conscience protections and to have it taught um, as as something that is a, a good. It's not a liability for patients, but it's actually a good for patients and that we need to not morally abandon our patients either. Um, and so um some of the areas that I've been working with uh, is within the American Academy of Family Physicians, the AFP, and that's my professional medical organization. Um, in the last year, there's been um, uh, several uh, resolutions, which are sort of the equivalent of bills to create policy within our medical societies. And some of them uh, we crafted were to help support conscience protections. And then we saw several were very much uh, anti-conscience, that mm-hmm. clinicians of conscience should not be practicing medicine and should refer and must do this and should basically get out of medicine. Um, And, um, and so that one um, we have provided testimony on, we've tried to sort of mobilize other family physicians to speak on. Um, It's not law, but our medical societies do create a culture for our learners, particularly our medical students and residents, as well as um, a signal to, to society. This is what a healthcare professional, this is what a family physician should be like. Um, and, um, you know, we saw that shift within ACOG that, uh, the obstetrics and gynecology, even though, you know, most, the overwhelming majority of OBGYNs actually don't, um, perform abortions. Right, right. Um, and yet now that the organization said, this is what we do, it really sets the tone for, for public policy. It sets the tone for trainees. Um, and so it really is an important endeavor. I think that within all of our medical organizations that we have people that are engaging in these issues. Um, so that's been one of the areas that I've been working with. 
um, I helped set up the family medicine section within APLOG. So I'm, I'm a board member of APLOG, which is the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Um, we now have a family medicine section so that we can kind of mobilize about this issue. We have a pro-life member interest group now within the AAFP, uh, which um, surprisingly has is, is managed to uh, uh, to pull a, a large number of people. And um, ha- we have muddled through despite some uh, resistance um, right. and some challenges that we've faced from the outside. Um, I'm not surprised and, that you have a significant number of yeah, people interested in that. Yeah, and I think there's a lot more people that are yeah. probably uh, probably uh, lurkers, as we call yes. them. <laughs> we're, we're watching the message boards, but but maybe don't want to click the uh, the join button because right. they don't necessarily want to be uh, outed. Um, yep. But um, and then the the third thing that we've done um, besides forming those two uh, uh, sections for family medicine. Um, is to create a, uh, a course um, for medical students and residents taught by board-certified professionals, um, mostly OBGYN, but some palliative care. Um, we have a, um, a licensed um, clinical therapist and several others that have taught within the course. It's a, it's, uh, but it's designed specifically for learners um, through APLOG and through Students for Life. And it, um, we're hoping to just be able to to build up our medical students and residents who are probably facing the most challenges of of, of anyone um, in terms of how to move forward in this sort of uh, anti conscience world that we're that we're um, potentially moving into. And um, so it's twelve hours of recorded lecture, an additional probably twelve to fifteen hours of reading, and um, some optional activities and discussion questions that people could do if they were doing it in a group setting. There are some pro-life medical student groups, um, so we were hoping to be a resource for them. And then right now we're trying to turn it into an elective. Um, so you know, if there's a faculty at a medical school that's listening to this or a residency program, if you know some um, pro-life uh, medical students or residents that might be interested in taking this, it would be essentially no work just to, um, but it would just have to be processed through and approved as a two-week elective, and that way um, our learners could get credit for all of the work that they're doing. Yeah. So that's kind so of where th- we are with that. Yeah. So this is the advocacy for life course, correct? It is. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I'd like to just delve a little bit deeper into that, um, if we could. So I, I think the first question I was asked is why did you create the course? But I think you've already answered that question to to help. Well, well actually, let me let me let me you let, let me yeah. let you respond to that question. Why was the course created? Yeah, I think um, I began to hear. Uh, so as being in faculty, I, I certainly we get a lot of um, medical students, you know, interviewing with us to to join the residency, and then and then as I've been more involved with APLOG and other organizations, I've just sensed there's this void of um, useful, helpful information about how to advocate for patients if you're a pro life physician. So if they, you know, a lot of students are coming from medical schools where if there are pro-life physicians, they're probably fairly quiet and they're not necessarily um, teaching medical students and, and even residents. How do you how do you do this well? How do you um, support your patients without discrimination and yet also uphold your conscience? How do you do this in a way that allows you to um, practice with integrity um, and, you know, uphold, um, uphold and respect your patients and your other, you know, colleagues. And how do you make it through residency without sort of, <laughs> you know, getting, right. uh, um, getting sidelined or, or, or getting in trouble? How do you apply for jobs? 
Um, if you have particular views about things that you think there, I bet they're going to, you know, at this FQHC, they're going to expect me to do F, you know, this, this, that, and the other. And how do I, when do I bring that up? Do I bring it up before I get hired? Do I bring it up after I get hired? What are my, you know, so there was a lot of questions that I think people, I, I just had more and more people emailing me sort of on the side, Hey, what do I do in this situation? What should I do? What do you recommend? Um, and so I felt like there was a real need for this sort of education. Um, and our course is designed, it covers a little bit on ethics, um, but the primary uh, focus is beginning and end of life care. Um, so how do you how do you approach being a holistically pro-life physician, you know, kind of throughout the spectrum of life? Um, how do you do that at the patient level? But then how do you even more broadly, how do you navigate with colleagues? How do you navigate within medical schools or residencies? And then public policy and advocacy there, I felt like was uh, probably the, the the most significant void of education that I found is um, I think most um, pro-life uh, healthcare professionals are not engaging in public policy because they've never seen it modeled and they and they don't know what to do. Mm. Um, they may be afraid about various things. And so at least trying to, to, to be able to say, here's how you can do this well. Here's how you can advocate in your medical society. Here's how you can advocate um, at the state level. Um, and, um, here's, here's some tips for media. Here's some tips for, uh, how to testify. Here's some tips for how to write a resolution or how to uh, respond to your legislator. All of those things I felt like, um, needed to be, um, at least an introductory, uh, education for our learners. If we can train them when they're medical students and residents, I think that they'll be miles ahead of us, um, when, um, all of these issues really come to the forefront for them in practice. Yeah. As you were talking about the, uh, you know, the practical questions that stu- medical students and residents have, I was thinking about the uh, the interview we did with Ashley Womack a couple of episodes ago, and she went through her whole story. She she did a she did a great job, you know, navigating those, those minefields and everything else. But Lisa, is the intended audience of this course is it just medical students and residents, or can practitioners of Shall we say all ages and experience um, enroll in it as well? Yeah, it's it's free. It's online. Um, anyone can enroll. You can click on whichever lectures you're interested in watching and skip the other ones. Um, so even then, some dopey NCBC anyone can certainly jump in there if they want to. Anyone can anyone can watch it. Um, and um, so hopefully in the in the show notes you can link to how to to join that. Um, and, um, and then it will, uh, automatically help you, um, log into a learning platform through students for life. Um, and then from there, you can kind of take it from there and just go through the course. We're working on getting uh, CME for it, which is continuing medical education credit, uh, for those that are healthcare professionals. Um, we're, we're in the process of that. Uh, that's not been our main focus because we really wanted to focus on our learners. Right. Um, so yeah. you will see a lot of references to medical students and residents throughout it because that that's our primary audience, but certainly anyone can take it. Yeah. And I'll link to the, um, I, I have the link to the, to the course and I'll put it in the show notes when we, um, I'll put it in the show notes so people can access it. What kind of uh, feedback have you received from students who've gone through the course so far? Yeah, a lot of positive feedback. Um, our initial cohort, we sort of hand-selected because we wanted to make sure that it was um, committed students who would be able to provide us with some critical feedback mm-hmm. on how to yep. develop it further and, and, and what areas were, were positive, what areas were negative. And we really did receive that um, and we had, you know, weekly meetings where we would present the material and kind of go through it. Um, since then, we've recorded it. So it's all a little bit less hands-on um, because none of us really had the time to, to be able to engage 
continuously with the process of weekly meetings with learners across the country. Um, and uh, but from from uh, and and so I think that people completing the course has sort of dropped off in that regard. But there's been a lot, you know, thousands of people that have clicked and watched various lectures. Mm-hmm. So I know that it's still that information is still getting out there. And I, I suspect people are just sort of clicking on the ones that they find most pertinent right. or most interesting to them. Um, certainly OBGYNs may not be interested in the the palliative care and hospice <laughs> and advanced care planning discussions that, that may come and in. And vice their, versa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, people that are going into end of life care that, you know, they, they, they might be somewhat less engaged with some of the uh, beginning of life issues. Um, and so, uh, but really, we just really wanted to be a resource. Uh, and so I think overall positive um, response, we've got a lot more to do. We, we would really like to be able to mentor students going through the course better. Um, and so I think that's going to be our next focus for the fall is how can we, you know, do monthly meetings or, or something to really right. help um help students not feel alone and help them to feel more connected with other learners and with faculty. So just to clarify, because I'm a bit confused here. So is it a, is it a set time period where the course starts and finishes or can people just go on it and click on lectures and see whatever they want to see? So we used to have it as a set uh, course. And um, because of the limitations of time, we just realized we need to record this and just have it um, online for people to be able to watch on their own time. And hopefully moving forward, we can have kind of a meet and greet, you know, question and answer type thing, maybe mm-hmm. once a month, I think is what we're what we're thinking. Um, and so that people, wherever they are in the course, could certainly join into that and and get to know some of the faculty and ask some of their questions. Um, but right now, it's really uh, truly on your own time. But is, can you get academic credit for it? Well, so that's that- what that's the, the only way to get academic credit for it would be if a faculty member is willing to sort of sponsor it at their own institution. Okay, I got so it. So if a student... Okay watch you know wants to wants to take this for a two-week elective credit they just need to find a um, faculty who might be supportive um, and say yes I'm willing whoever that person is in their institution I'm willing to be the um, local uh, person who verifies that you actually completed the information right. and they may have to turn in an assignment or there, we have some like suggested activities that they could pick from just trying to, to take the burden off of that faculty member, whoever that is across the country. But uh, we've certainly had some interested program directors uh, from various programs who've said, how can we, uh, you know, engage with this material? And I've sent them the syllabus and I said, take it, use it, adapt it if you want to. It, it's right. not copyrighted. I mean, it's whatever you want to do with this material, um, take it and run with it. Cool. Lisa, before we conclude our interview, is there anything else, any other information that you'd like our listeners to know about? Um, Well, I think if you're a healthcare professional, I would say um, please engage. Uh, This is going to be a tremendously important year, um, um, particularly if if, uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, wherever that goes with the Supreme Court hearing, if that gets um, overturned and it goes to the state level, uh, we really need people to be engaged um, with within their own state, know your state laws, and, and to be connected there. APLOG, um, the organization that I'm on the board with, um, has um, some training, um, expert witness training, and other things that they're going to be offering to people um, if you're interested in learning more. Um, but we really just need people to, to lean in and engage. And for everyone else out there, I, you know, in your own ways, to be able to support conscience, if you want to look at your own state conscience laws and get um, see if there's uh, any ways to strengthen those, or if they don't exist, which most states don't have anything, um, getting that uh, getting that um, uh, 
kind of at least introduced, I think would be a really a tremendous help for the healthcare professionals um, that you uh, that you may know or may want to have for your children or grandchildren someday. Yeah, and something else to keep in mind too is uh, you know as we're as I said we're recording on May excuse me on May on March tenth. Um, we're anticipating that in April. Uh, a few weeks from now, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Biden administration, will issue a new rule um, where they're going to say that uh, health insurers and all healthcare clinicians um, have to, well, insurance has to cover and healthcare and clinicians have to provide uh, all quote unquote medical services and basically takes all conscience rights away. So we're anticipating that that is going to happen. And if and when that does happen, that just makes this conversation even more, um, even more important. But, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be monitoring that. And I'm sure if it, if that does come down, we'll be having podcasts. We may grab you again and, yeah. and, and, and talk about, talk about what that, uh, the impact of that could be on you as a, as a faithful Catholic, uh, healthcare professional. So, and the last thing we, I would say, just pray for Ukraine, um, you know, and, um, you know, try to reach out and engage. And there's a number of different charities, a number of different ways, but um, we need prayer um, for, for Ukraine. Absolutely. Lisa Gilbert, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website, please hover on the blogs and podcasts button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red donate button. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you.